Well, you guys have been uh, such a blessing to be a part of. Thank you for your welcome that you've given to Tam and I over these last four months. And um, as we're preparing to just expand God's kingdom one service at a time, and that's Pastor Rob's heart, my heart, uh, it's hard to expand with some building project or another facility when we're in trouble with the law. So we're just going to maximize our square footage that we have here. So we, we're going to do a lot of services, whatever we have to do. And you please be praying. We go back to court uh, in April. And if you guys remember, a couple of weeks ago, the uh, ACORN, the local newspaper, shared a story that the county prosecutor has settled up with all the COVID cases with business. Businesses and churches except God speak and Pastor Rob McCoy. So uh, they're making it a point to come after us specifically uh, because you guys are sitting here with no social distancing and no mask, but we are having a great time, are we not? Amen. So what a tremendous blessing. Hey, we're going to be getting in the word after I give you a news update for the week. And if you don't have a Bible with you and you want a Bible, just raise your hand. The ushers are going to get you a Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home. We have so many visitors that are coming that don't have Bibles. They don't, haven't uh, really had a past relationship with the Lord. And they just take those Bibles home. So that's a gift to you. And uh, if you want one, just keep those hands up and they'll get one to you. And you'll want to be opening to the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. And in a little bit, we'll stand and read God's Word. But we are going through Anchored in the Word. It's a two-year Bible reading program from Genesis to Revelation. Most believers have never read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation. Did you know that? It's a big read. Sometimes it's a difficult read. You can bog down a bit in Leviticus if you haven't spent time in the Word. But we're going to lead you through it. And a message is going to come from the weekly reading. Pastor Rob. Rob has chosen a passage in our weekly reading to bring to the saints tomorrow morning, and I've chosen a passage from Mark chapter 14. And you know what's kind of fun? I did this for years with my congregation in Idaho, and, and that is the church would try to guess. They would read the week's reading and try to guess the passage Pastor Rick was uh, bringing for Sunday morning. I had a lady come up to me. She said, Pastor Rick, I've been doing the Bible reading faithfully for five years. I've chosen every week, and I've been wrong for five years. And so uh, it's uh, large passages of Scripture, but we're so excited about Anchored in the Word and the team that put it together. But, you know, this week, uh, Disney's in the news this week. Maybe you checked it out, but um, Disney's in because they are censoring some classics because there is a woke mob of censorship going on in America where free speech is being thrown under the bus. And these are the movies, and this is, check this out. They are removing, they're removing Peter Pan, Dumbo, the Aristocrats, and Swiss Family Robinson, one of my all-time favorites, from kids viewing on their Disney channel, but they add warning labels for adults to explain these things to them, okay? It not only add to that list what Disney's doing, but Pepe Le Pew thrown under the bus this week. Now, I agree, this French skunk is a little bit love-starved and a little aggressive, okay? Anybody that's watched Pepe, I, I get that, I understand that. Then we have Speedy Gonzalez that's in a little bit of trouble from being censored himself. Now, this has been creeping up slowly. It's been happening for some time, you guys. Back in 2017, maybe you followed this story in Portland, 
But Cook's Burritos, just a, a burrito truck along the road, these two girls that you see there, they decided to start a, a food business, and they went down to Mexico, and they were just asking all of the Mexican ladies and the cooks that they were doing cooking, they said, how do you cook your tortillas? So they were learning recipes and watching their techniques, and they were just gleaning like anybody would about culinary art, right? They came home, and they applied the things that they learned from the ladies, and their, tr- their uh, burrito truck was just crushing it. I mean, it was killing it. And then somebody did an article on the ladies and they just innocently told the story and they were out of business. You know why? Look what it says here. This is not about cooking at home or historical influences on cuisines. It's about profit, ownership, and wealth in a white supremacist culture. You see, you get in trouble if you try to appropriate now with this woke cultural cancellation if you get in the crosshairs. Even Kim Kardashian got in trouble for cultural appropriation by wearing cornrows as braids. And she, she said she was not, you know, imitating the African-American culture that, I mean, cornrows for guys or girls, either one is a common phenom, but she said she was imitating Bo Derek from the movie 10, right? Now, you who are younger, you have no clue what I'm saying, but get interpretation somewhere, all right? So I think cornrows are cool. As a matter of fact, if I had a beautiful head, I think I would try to rock some cornrows, right? I, I just think it's cool. I've traveled around the world. I've been to 17 different countries doing mission work, and my wife and I have went through the list of all the things we learned in those cultures, and we brought back, and we applied it to our life. If that's true, if the Chinese invented gunpowder, does that mean we culturally can't appropriate it for our guns? Right? I mean, where do you draw the line? It's unbelievable what's going on in this realm. Now, and here all along, I thought, this is what my mama taught me? I don't know about you, but imitation is the highest form of compliment. That's what I learned my whole life. Imitation, like... If somebody's imitating you, that's a tremendous compliment, right? Because they're, they're looking to you and acknowledging something special. Well, even the royal family, boom, a bomb went off this week, didn't it, with the last Sunday night's interview with Oprah Winfrey? And I'm not even going to touch that. That's just volatile. And, and, and you know, I, I know that uh, Harry and Meghan, I, it seems like they're hurting And they're just on the other side of the hill here at Malibu in their $14 million mansion after their $100 million Netflix thing. But, you know, it sounds like trouble in River City. I don't know what's going on. But you might know this guy. We got censored and kicked off. Anybody try to look for our live stream this week, right? We've been censored. We're off for seven days. We got strike one. That's a full week. Seven days, you're off. Strike two, it's two weeks. Hey, Micah, strike three. Are we off for good? Yes, sir. <laughs> well, Rob's swinging for the fence, so just stay tuned with what's going on. <laughs> for Vintage McCoy. But this, this takes it, right? We, we, we kind of tongue-in-cheek. We talk about some of this stuff. Then it gets a little more serious because it gets close to home. But do you know that Jesus was a racist and needed to be woke? Did you know that? Check this pastor out. This is a pastor. Did you know that there's a part of the Gospel of Mark where Jesus uses a racial slur? 
In Mark chapter 7, there's the account of the Seraphonician woman, a woman who is Syrian and Greek, both of which there were strong biases against within the Jewish community. And she comes to ask Jesus to heal her daughter who's possessed by a demon. And what is Jesus' response? He says, it's not good for me to give the children's food, meaning the children of Israel's food, to dogs. He calls her a dog. What's amazing about this account is that the woman doesn't back down. She speaks truth to power. She confronts Jesus and says, well, you can think that about me, but even dogs deserve the crumbs from the table. Her boldness and bravery to speak truth to power actually changes Jesus' mind. Jesus repents of his racism and extends healing to this woman's daughter. I love this story because it's a reminder that Jesus is human. He had prejudices and bias, and when confronted with it, he was willing to do his work. And this woman was willing to stand up and speak truth. Whoa. Did you know that our Savior is a racist? But it's okay, because he repented. Now, this all... Now, granted, I want to share with you that this is a difficult passage of Scripture, and he was accurate in what it said. Jesus was bringing the gospel, and this is a plan that you see throughout the New Testament, the progressive rollout of the gospel to peoples. It starts, it's the Jew first, then the Gentile. This is the model all the way through the New Testament. The Jew first, the Gentile. Because the Jews had to go through so much as the keepers, if you will, of the family line to bring the Messiah and ultimately the scriptures to deliver it to the world. So they got the first shot at the gospel. So what Jesus was saying is the gospel, the food, the nutrition of the gospel is not to be given to the Gentile dogs. He uses a tender term in the Greek, which is your pet puppy or your little, little dog that could, you know, I mean, some of you love your dogs more than you two humans, but that's understandable because some humans are difficult to love. But be that as it may, I mean, you, you knit little sweaters, they might be chilly. I mean, you're really into it. Anyway, what he's saying, and, but this woman was very spiritually perceptive. The Spirit of God prompted her, and she's like, Yeah, but even us Gentiles could eat the crumbs that fall from the Jewish table and experience my daughter's deliverance from this demon possession. And Jesus granted it to her and, and said what incredible faith she had. Jesus taught some shocking, startling, hard teachings. And it takes a little complexity to check it out. When Jesus said, if your hand sins, chop it off. It's better to go into hell or to go through life with one without a hand than to go into hell for eternity, right? Now, did Jesus literally mean go around chopping off your hands, chopping off your feet, and plucking out your eyes? If that is the, if that is the case, we would be, call our church the first church of the maimed. Right? We'd all be coming in on stubs. I mean, our hands, our feet, we're blind, we're bouncing around. <laughs> Did he literally mean that? No, there's a spiritual principle that it takes a little complexity. Jesus said, if you don't hate your father and mother and love me more, you cannot enter my kingdom. Now, wait a second. You mean Jesus is te teaching us to hate our parents? No, it's complex. It's called a shock factor in teaching because he taught in other places, rebuked the Pharisees because they were actually not honoring their father and mother. It's one of the Ten Commandments, honor your father and mother. So what was Jesus saying? Jesus was saying, your love for him in comparison to your love for anyone else should pale in comparison so much that those other people actually think you don't like them as much as you used to because your devotion is so, Jesus is so preeminent in your life. And sometimes family members feel that way, right? Ever since you fell in love with Jesus, I can't persuade you the way I used to. 
Why? Because Jesus has become preeminent. The teaching of the Bible is not some simple thing. And we, I mean, the easy thing we could start from is Jesus. He who knew no sin, he was sinless, became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So we just start with good theology and we're not thinking Jesus is in sin and racist and rebuked by a foreign woman, right? I mean, it seems pretty straightforward. But... This is the kind of teaching, other, more, other liberal teaching of pastors, they teach that Paul the Apostle and Onesimus were homosexual lovers, that King David and Jonathan, Saul's son, were also lovers homosexually, and, and so they, you know what, you can make the Bible say a lot of stuff if you want to, but our job is to rightly divide the word of truth and to bring nourishment to God's people, amen? Amen. 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 So, that being said, let's get to the word. Amen. We want to open up to Mark chapter 14. If you have a Bible, we're going to stand and read these 11 verses to get together as we just honor the Lord, honor his word, hear from him. If you don't have a Bible, you can look on the screen and follow along with us. After two days, it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why? Why has this fragrant oil wasted, be wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor, and they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me, for you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always." She has done what she could. She has come before to anoint me, my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. Father, we ask now in Jesus' wonderful name that your spirit would touch our hearts, touch our lives, open our hearts that we might see wonderful things in your beautiful word. Nourish us, strengthen us, do heart surgery on us, Lord, to lead us in your way everlasting. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. You may be seated. We want to look at this passage of Scripture, and the title of our message is Loving Worship or Painful Betrayal. You know, it's, love is such an expansive thing for our soul, isn't it? Love is one of those expanding things that really transforms us. And when we love God and we love other people, our life just feels like it's expanding with fullness and meaning and purpose and quality of life. But when you get the hurts and the pains of betrayal, 
and you shrivel and you shrink back and you begin to self-protect and you can't trust anybody anymore, then your life begins to shrink and to shrivel into a corner. How many of us being hurt and abused or whatever it might have been as you're growing up and now you just grow up in a world and you are just so unsure of anybody that tries to show you affection because the people that you've let into your life in the past that betray your trust and let you down, it's like a dagger in your heart. And the closer that person is, the more it hurts. Isn't it true? Now in this passage, we have four groups of people. We have the takers. We have the givers, we have the talkers, and we have the traitors. We want to first of all look at the takers. Now the takers are the religious leaders in Jerusalem. For it says in verses 1 and 2, After two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. At a time of great celebration for the Jewish people, when they looked back 1,400 years earlier at their great deliverance out of Egypt, after nine incredible plagues and Pharaoh constantly hardening his heart, God told Moses one more plague, the firstborn of all the Egyptians and all their animals, are all going to die. But you Jews, you, you butcher a lamb and you put the blood across the top of the door and on the lintels, the side posts. And if, when the death angel passes over, he's going to see the blood of the lamb and you're not going to fall under judgment and the firstborn's not going to die. And after that day, as the next day, when that happened, they all were told to get out by Pharaoh, get out of Egypt, and they were delivered from the bondage and the oppression and the sorrow of heart that Egypt had brought to their lives, and Pharaoh. And it's a picture of people that are under the bondage of the devil, the bondage of sin, and being set free and going out of the land of Egypt. They should be looking back. Now connected, these two feasts were connected. The, the Passover happened and then seven days the Feast of Unleavened Bread. The Jews were to go through all of their house and it became this custom and a game for the kids. They would go through the house prior to the week of Unleavened Bread and they would get all the leaven out of the house. You got to get it out because yeast is a picture of sin that corrupts. And so they got to repent, if you will. The house is cleansed from all of the leaven. It's a time to get cleansed. It's a time to be redeemed. And it was a time of celebration for the Jewish people. But the religious leaders should, who should have been focusing on remembering how they were delivered from the death angel that passed over and how should have been getting the leaven out of their hearts, their own sin, you know what they're doing instead? They're plotting to kill the Lamb of God that's going to take away the sins of the world. Isn't it ironic? You know, there's a lot of talk over this last four years about the swamp in Washington, D.C., right? President Trump was going to come and drain the swamp, but the swamp monsters were bigger than all of us thought, right? They're still there. It's like the Loch Ness Monster. I mean, it's pretty scary stuff. But Jesus was coming to drain the spiritual swamp of the hypocrisy of Jerusalem, where people had got into power, they had figured out the political structure and how to get wealthy and maintain power. There's nothing new under the sun, you guys. Nothing new under the sun. Humanity's the same. What do they want? Money and power. Money and power. Money and power. Money, power, and girls. Money, power, and girls. You know, I just, Billy Graham used to say it this way. Beware of the gold. Beware of the girls. And beware of the glory. <laughs> Only Billy can say that. You there on the television. 
I see that hand. <laughs> the buses will wait. Come now. We won't do the altar call right now. Anyway. <laughs> but these are the things that pull on us as humans, right? The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Nothing new under the, the sun, but this is the religious culture in which the Savior, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the, the great I am was coming into their midst, and he, had clean, he cleansed the temple, you know, with a whip at the beginning of his ministry. Three and a half years later when he comes back, he cleans it again with a whip. And they're like, where do you get this authority to come clean house with that whip? He's like, it's my dad's house. <laughs> it's my father's house. And you've made it a den of thieves. This group of religious leaders that should have been leading God's people into an ever-deepening knowledge of the great I am, God, was plotting how they can assassinate the Son of God. Unbelievable. It says they sought how they might take him, in verse 1, by trickery and put him to death. Trickery is the practice of crafty, underhanded ingenuity to deceive or cheat by imposter or fraud. And they're going to find a friendly imposter who's going to be able to help them out with the trickery to get Jesus caught. But just because their murderous hearts we're ready to assassinate. Basically, they're putting a hit on Jesus. Think about it. This is like the, this is the Jewish mafia, and it's the high priest. It's the chief priest. But they're still politically savvy because, you know, out in public, oh, um, I'm so, oh, bless God. Praise the Lord. People can play the game. It's the ultimate hypocrisy. But they're politically savvy, it says, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people, lest their poll ratings go down. we got to do this at night, right? you, you got to figure out how to do it at night. you got to keep it under the radar. So in public during the day, we can be the robed, godly, most holy, right reverend individuals. And then at night when nobody's looking so that we can take care of this. Now, their motivation, you might think to yourself, well, they have the power. What was their motivation? Well, this is Pontius Pilate was an ungodly pagan leader, right? Governmental leader. And when the chief priest handed Jesus over to him to be crucified, this was his observation of the chief priest. It says in Mark 15, 10, he knew that the chief priest had handed him over because of envy. Envy. They looked at the crowds that were following Jesus. They looked at his influence. They looked at his truthfulness. They looked at his authenticity. They looked at his, he was not intimidated. He feared no one. And he just called them all out. And they looked at that with an envy. Now, envy is one of the strangest human emotions you'll ever experience. It's the feeling of deep displeasure at the blessing of another. Isn't that twisted? It's so weird. This person's blessed. I hate their guts. What's that to you? You know what I mean? What's that to you? This person is wealthy, or they got the promotion, or they uh, got this beautiful bride, or they have this, or you just name it. You can just fit it in there, and you look at them, and, and you just have a disdain for them. Because Solomon said it so well in Proverbs that envy is like rottenness in your bones. It eats you up from the inside, doesn't it? Now, you're human, so I'm going to say 100% every one of you in this room has tasted the fruit of envy. You have looked at somebody 
and you saw that they are just more stinking blessed than any human should be. And you're just waiting for the day for them to stumble and, you know, make a mess of their life so you can go, finally, they got theirs. You know, you, inter- you learn something about friends over the years. I realized that everybody that I thought was my friend, when I would share with them what a blessing this was, hey, I got a raise at work, or I got this great deal on this rig, man, this, they want to see it? You're just celebrating with someone you thought was your friend. And all of a sudden, oh, really? That's nice. Yeah, yeah, good, yeah, yeah, good for you. I got to go. I, when one of my friends are blessed, I want to rejoice with them. It seems strange that Paul the Apostle would have to tell a group of Christians at Rome, at, in Rome, in Romans 12, he said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. When somebody's rejoicing, rejoice with them. And if they're crying, just be quiet and cry with them. We do the exact opposite. If they're rejoicing, we're weeping. How come it's not me? Right? And if they're weeping, we go, ha we're rejoicing. It's about time. We are twisted people, folks. Right? This is our on-the-couch moment about envy. I want you to know, honestly, there's some people in this room that envy is robbing you of daily joy. Envy is robbing you of daily joy. Because you look at somebody and you see the blessing of God on their life. And it makes you sick. Crazy stuff. The religious leaders, they're no different than you and I. It happens on the playground in third grade. And it happens in the rest home at 70 years of age. Right? Nobody's exempt from the green-eyed monster of envy. That's what was going on with these guys. But then we turn the corner from the takers because those guys only know how to take and serve me, serve me, serve me. And then you have the givers. I love this. It's such a beautiful contrast in verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. Now, it's a very expensive, fragrant, essential oil called spikenard. And it was worth a year's worth of wages, we'll find in a moment. Just pray tell, what, how expensive do you think the most expensive bottle of perfume is in the world? Before you answer that, and I'll give you a chance after this brief video, check out this brief video because this perfume is the most expensive perfume in all the known world. It's called the Spirit of Dubai. (laughs) Our story begins with the hint of a subtle fragrance carried by the warm desert winds to the sea. I am the Spirit of Dubai, and this is Dubai Baha. Come with me, explorer, and experience the wonder of wonders As generations come and go, Shomuch remains an eternal, ever-changing canvas, capturing the beauty of life around us, portraying the grandeur of ancient dynasties and future eras. Shomuch is a window into the soul of Dubai. Chosen for their extraordinary skill and sense of wonder, artisans and jewelers from France and Italy work together to craft Shomuch blended and distilled into an essence to capture an eternal fragrance with rare natural ingredients. 
The magnum opus from the spirit of Dubai by Nabil. Shamur. Shamur. <laughs> Any guesses, just for fun, how much do you think this is most expensive perfume in the world? Million? Very close. Check this out. 1,290,000. Shamur. A million dollars. Oh, that was two million right there. Right? <laughs> it's really, if you watch this whole video, I guess if you're selling something for a million bucks, you, you should have a three-minute uh, advertisement, which that was. We cut it down for the sake of our time. But it's that the uh, canister is covered with gold and diamonds and just incredible artistry, really, and uh, for a little few spritzes. And of course, it's unisex, so the wife can wear it, and then the husband can smell just like the wife if he wants to. It's, it's for him or her, either one. Well, what we're talking about is not in that category, but for the common person it was. And for this person we know to be Mary, Lazarus, and Martha's sister, it was a year's worth of wages. It was either a dowry or it was transferred wealth from one generation to the other. And it was a sealed bottle. Check out this bottle. This is what one of them would look like. It's like a marbleish stone. And if you wanted to protect for a long period of time, according to historians, an essential oil, you put it in something like this. It was sealed, but you had to break the top of it and then pour it out to use it. And that's what she did. And she poured it out all on Jesus' head. Now, this spikenard was so rare because it came all the way as it was a flowering plant in, uh, in the honeysuckle family which grows in the Himalayas of Nepal, China, and India. So it came a long ways to arrive there. But when Mary did this, John gives us a little more uh, texture, if you will, to this moment. In John chapter 12, Verse 3, it says, Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, can I just tell you for a moment about this incredible picture of givers? It was an oasis of grace. From the word that where'd they meet at, it was Simon the leper. Now, they couldn't go there if he was still a leper, but because Jesus was there, what had happened? <laughs> he had been healed of his leprosy. But once you have the handle, Simon the leper, I mean, he, he you know, maybe healed for a decade. I'm no longer a leper. And, and, and I know to a lot of people, uh, leprosy is this kind of distant thing, but uh, I spent time in a room about the size of a living room with 30 people that were lepers. And uh, we worshiped together, and they had, you know, wounds on their hands and things. And we, we actually went there with trash bags full of shoes to give to the lepers that they were so grateful for because when they slept at night, because of the leprosy that kills your nerve endings, they had to sleep with shoes lest the rats eat their feet. The life of a leper is startling. It was like 90 degrees, and we're in this hot, room and, and the smells and all the exciting things of the mission field were quite there, very pungent. And he was Simon the leper, but Jesus had healed him. Do you think he, he had a grateful heart, <laughs> right? He had to go around like this for years, unclean, unclean, nobody could get close to him. 
And then Lazarus was there, according to John's gospel, and he's at the table eating with Jesus. He had been dead, and Jesus raised him from the dead. So he got resurrection power in the house. He got healing power in the house. Here's Lazarus. I think Lazarus still, to me, is going to be that guy you talk to in heaven. You're around the water cooler. Now it's living water, but you're around the water cooler. You're hanging out with Lazarus, and it had to be the most disappointing day of his life. You know, Jesus called him back, but he was in Abraham's bosom. He was in a place of paradise, and four days later, it's like, Lazarus, come forth. No! Right? I got to go back to that hellhole, right? I'm here in paradise, and you're bringing me back there. On top of that, the religious leaders put a hit on Jesus, but because Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, and he was testimony to Jesus' authenticity, they put a hit on Lazarus. They're going to kill him, too. It's like, well, I died before, but now I'm going to die again because the religious leaders want to kill me. Go check that out. It's just... It's bizarre. And then Mary's there. She's serving food because that's what she loves to do. Hopefully she didn't steal any cultural recipes. (laughs) Canceled. (laughs) I apologize for all this stuff. It's just like, it's bubbling. It's it's bubbling out of me and it just, it's, it's there. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So. And in all of this, Mary, who is the quintessential worshipers, every time you see Mary in the scriptures, she's at Jesus' feet. Every time. She's listening to him. She's absorbing everything that he's doing, everything that he's teaching. She's just soaking it up. And she, Jesus had become the love of her life, and she took the most precious thing that she had. She broke it open, and she poured it on his head, and she poured it on his feet. And ladies... She poured it on his feet in this act of worship, and she took her long Jewish hair, and she wiped his feet. I mean, the the beauty of it is, is, I mean, if you were watching it, I mean, there's no way you could get through it without just tears running down your face. Because the, the intimacy of that moment of worship, and then it says, the whole house was filled with the fragrance. The whole house. You see, a household of givers is a beautiful smelling thing. The aroma of it. People want, on the other hand, when there's strife and there's selfishness and there's this, this, just this tearing down, biting and devouring, it just makes you sick, sick to your stomach. But the, the house is filled with the fragrance of the goodness, the oasis of grace that Jesus brings when he touches people's hearts. It's what this room's like, right? Jesus has touched our hearts. It's like this incredible oasis of grace. Just being refreshed, eating together, celebrating the resurrection power of Jesus, the healing power of Jesus, the forgiving power of Jesus, because he's the king of kings and he's the Lord of lords. We connect. We understand Mary as as this giver. There's, There's plenty of takers in the world. There's a minority of givers. The strange thing about the givers you know, I've been a pastor for 32 years. When, when I planted a church in Idaho Falls in 1993, and when we had 100 people at the church, 10 people did all the work. When we had 1,000 people at the church, 100 people did all the work. When we had 2,000 people at the church, 200 people did all the work. When we had 3,000 people at the church, 300 people did all the work. Pastor Rob shares with us historically, since he's a history major, that in the Revolutionary War, to fight for this incredible freedom that you and I are the recipients of, the only one out of 10 in the same way were givers to lay their life down for the cause of liberty. Isn't it something? 
everybody wants to be a giver, but when it comes to paying the price or counting the costs or any of those things, that sometimes there's this, this roadblock between us and being who we want to be by God's grace. And then there's the talkers. Now, who in the world could find anything negative to say about that beautiful picture I just described? Here's a woman pouring out this beautiful uh, essential oils on Jesus' head and feet and wiping them, especially if they felt the same way. I promise you Simon the leper felt the same way as Mary. He was healed of leprosy. I promise you that Lazarus, who was raised from the dead, well, that's a little question mark. Anyway, <laughs> he had to come back to the hellhole of earth. But still, he understood that moment. And Martha as well, because her brother was restored to her. But who could destroy, who could come here tonight and tear apart just a beautiful time that we're having. Plenty of people. Plenty of people. Right? They're going to find everything wrong with what we've done. And nothing new under the sun, as I said. Look at this. There's the talkers. In verse 4 and 5, But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? Look at their perspective. What she did for the Savior of the world was a waste. For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply in front of everybody. They humiliated her. They shamed her right in front of the Lord. Now the real motive of this, John gives us. And I'm so thankful for the nuances that John chooses to give greater detail in this section of the story than the other gospel writers. And this is what he says. He says the ringleader, first of all, was Judas Iscariot. And the other people joined in. Because I want you to know, in your human nature, your fallen nature, as soon as somebody in a room starts criticizing and complaining, we all jump on board, right? It's our human nature. It's our downward step. It's easier to criticize than to encourage or build up. It just is. It's just a fallen human nature thing. But this is what John says. John 12, 6, he says this about Judas Iscariot. Not that he cared for the poor. He cared nothing for the poor. But because he was a thief and had the money box and he used to take what was put into it. He, out of the 12 apostles, he was the treasurer. And the treasurer was a thief. And all the money that was put in there, he's just like, it. one for Jesus, nine for me. One for Jesus, nine for me. He's ripping things off. And so when he saw this waste, it was like, a, a, to him, a dagger in his heart because he's like, 300 denarii. You know how much I could have pocketed out of that? I got to spend it on myself. He didn't care about the poor. Selfish ambition is the root of Judas Iscariot's problems. And so now he's the ringleader of talkers. He's going to be ultimately the traitor, as we'll look at in a moment. But get this, I've discovered that those who are the talkers are usually one step away from being the traitors. And they round up the people around them. Now, church life's a place where people love to talk. And not always in the best way. I met this couple uh, when I first got here. I lived in a hotel room for about a month till we could get into an apartment. And I was out at the pool, and the Lord ministered in my heart to go minister to this young family that was there at the pool. So I was sharing the Lord with them, and we were having a great time. And then his parents came. They're about my age. And the father lives up here in the neighborhood somewhere. And he says, uh, he said, uh, what's that app, uh, neighbor? Uh, next door. It's the app next door. Thank you. I'm technically illiterate. And, and so I told him, I was here at God speaking this and that, and his eyes got real big, and he goes, ooh, people on next door do not like you guys. <laughs> he said, you should see the things they're saying about you. 
And he said, I just kind of sit back and think to myself when I hear all these harsh, harsh comments, like, people, this is just a church. But the neighborhood, my wife, the first neighbor that she met in the apartment complex where we're at, she was just asking her about the area. She uh, was a fire-breathing hater of everybody that's gathered here. That was my wife's welcome to the neighborhood. Hello. Glad you're here. (laughs) So the talkers are always going to be there in church life. You remember growing up, I used to watch Charlie Brown, and all the adults all go, wah, 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 wah. That's what church life's like. It's a lot of like, wah, 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 wah. Everybody, we should do this, and we should do that, and that should happen that way, and this and that. Everybody's an armchair quarterback. But you know, when one's a real ringleader and they gather people up, pretty soon it goes from just talk to betrayal of love and trust. It just happens. I've watched it for years. The beautiful thing is that we have the takers. We get that. Their power, their swampy ways there in Jerusalem. We have the givers. We identify, man, Jesus has touched our lives. It's, it's amazing. We understand the talkers. But I love when the talkers come against the worshiper that Jesus is the defender. So we have the defenders. Check out what Jesus says in verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. He commands them straight up, just, just shut up. Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? He puts a question to their hearts. Why are you upset about this? Why are you, this is no skin off your nose. It's her money. It's her value. It's her bottle of perfume. She poured it out on me. It's not on you. What's your problem? And he's asking that question. And it's a good one for us to ask when we're really criticizing others that why, why are you troubled about those things? She has done a good work for me. Jesus straight up says, you're saying what she did was evil, wasteful, and awful, and I'm saying it was a good thing. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good, but me you do not have always. He said, this is a momentous time. I'm getting ready to be crucified. This is a very special moment. I promise you universally, day in, day out, 24-7, around the globe, plenty of poor people to minister to if you want to. And Jesus had a heart for the poor. So he's not like, once again, I, I think the woke pastor would say, look, Jesus doesn't care about the poor. No, he loves the poor. He's just saying what Mary did was a momentous occasion at this time because he was transient and passing through on his way to the cross, to the tomb, and to heaven. He explains her. He says she has done, in verse 8, what she could. And this is probably my favorite phrase in all of his defense. It is the defense of every child of God that simply does those things that God prompts them to do. She did what she could. She can't evangelize the whole world, maybe. She can't do this. She can't do that. And usually what people tell me as a pastor is all the things they can't do because of the current constraints of time or money. That's what they tell me. Oh, pastor, when I win the lottery, I'm going to give some money to the church. Uh, You know how many people have told me that over the years? All right. Always say, win, pick a good number. We'll take it. Right? But the real question you want to ask is, are you doing what you can now? Right? You're, not the, you're not getting 20 years of monthly payments of $20,000 or whatever it is, some ridiculous thing. But you're just doing what you can. The, the widow's two mites are a testimony to that. She had two mites. It was all she had. And she did what she could. God never asked you. He never asked me to do what I can't do. Ever. He doesn't ask me to give more than I have because I can't. 
But we have discretionary money. That means after all of our responsibilities financially are taken care of, we have discretionary money. We can do what we can. We have discretionary time. After I've, once again, maintained all of my commitments with work and my family, my responsibilities, I have discretionary time. What do I do with that time? What do I do with that money? Is there any place? Am I doing what I could do? Could I serve in this way? Could I serve in that way? Can I make myself engaged and available? Because this is the beautiful thing. Jesus said, when you lose your life for his sake, you find it. When you finally start giving and you start serving, you discover, oh, I thought it was a drag to give. I thought it was a drag to serve. And I realize now that actually it releases this joy in me that I did not know could happen. When I do what I could do. Just do what you can do. If you're a mom, pray with those little ones. Your hands are full. you got peanut butter all over your face from your little one. Just... Just pray with them, pray for them, love them. You're doing what you can do for Jesus' sake. Whatever you can do, and that's all Mary was doing. She did what she could do. Stop telling God, stop telling others that you're going to do thus and so when you can, when you have the money, with all your long list of excuses. Just do what you can today. Yesterday's gone. Tomorrow's not here. Just do what you can today. Love God with all your heart. Love the people that he puts in your life. It may just be a coworker that you're able to put your arm around. They seem discouraged. And you could actually ask them at break time, you okay? And bring the love of Jesus into that place. You see, you only have to do what you can. And Jesus knows that about you, and he knows it about me. He knows what you can do, and he knows what you can't do. And he'll never ask you the latter. He'll never ask you to do what you can't do. Right? So, this word that Jesus speaks is so beautiful. And then he says, it's a prophetic thing that she did, which is astounding. Whether Mary knew it or she didn't know it, but she's really the only one that was always just listening and not talking. And I've, I've discovered that the perceptive, quiet ones in the corner are picking up everything and us blabbermouths, we're just, we don't even know what's going on. Right? We're not tuned in. And it says, she has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. This is, for her, a, a funeral service, a, a burial service. She pours this, and this is what they did in that culture. And then it says, here Jesus honors her in verse 9. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached, in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. You didn't know that tonight is a memorial service to Mary, the sister of Lazarus. This is a memorial service. 2,000 years later, who are we talking about? Is Jesus' words coming true? Everybody that hears this story for the rest of time and eternity is going to hear about who? Mary. Isn't that mind-blowing? Mary's still getting kudos. Cha-ching, cha-ching, cha-ching. Honored from the Lord. Wow, just blows my mind, the goodness of God. Well, the traitor, we'll move through him pretty fast because it's not very fun to talk about. We see the traitor in Judas Iscariot in verse 10 and 11. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he saw how he might conveniently betray him. You know, there's some famous traitors in history. Cassius and Brutus, they gang up on Julius Caesar and they kill him on March 15th. Thus the statement, beware of the Ides of March, right? And so it's this classic story of friends betraying and, and breaking trust and breaking loyalty. Probably the most famous in our nation is Benedict 
Arnold uh, in the Revolutionary War. And what many people don't know, I just learned, you know, growing up in school in history, that he uh, was a turncoat, he went over to the British. But what you don't hear is he was a hero in three, you know, in three different battles in 70, uh, 1775, another battle in 1776, another battle in 1777. He never really got that much recognition, and he was a poor money manager, so he got over his head in debt while he was trying to fight the battles, and he just needed a way out from the debt. And so he sold his services. He sold his soul because over to the British, as long as he got a commission, they gave him money, and he escaped his debts to be a turncoat. Now, there are certain people that you just, you know, you're not going to, if you're expecting a male child, I doubt if Judas is on the list for names. What do you think? Here's my son Judas. What's his middle name? Hopefully not Iscariot, right? <laughs> I mean, if, you're, if you have a little girl on the way, what are you going to name your little girl? Jezebel. <laughs> do you know that story? Right. Are you going to name a little girl Jezebel? Are you going to name a, a little boy Judas? Are you going to name a, a little boy Benedict Arnold? Probably not. Because they start at a serious disadvantage, do they not? Right? And so it becomes synonymous with ultimate betrayal. And as it becomes synonymous with ultimate betrayal, you see, every traitor has a price. Right? Judas had his price. It says in Matthew 26, 15, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. The Savior of the world was worth the price of a first century slave. 30 pieces of silver. He sold his soul for 30 pieces of silver. At the time, maybe it seemed significant. I don't know. But his greed got the best of him. It seems he was pushed over the edge when he missed the big payday of the 300 denarii from the perfume that Mary. And he was just, he was so torn up that he went to him and said, how can I, you know, uh, make some money here and betray him. And then you have the traitor's tragic end. After Jesus is arrested and he realizes that he's, he's, he's blown it because Jesus is innocent, it says in Matthew 27, verses 3 through 8, Then Judas, his betrayer, seeing that he had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, What is that to us? You see to it. Then he threw down the pieces of silver in the temple and departed and went out and hanged himself. He commits suicide. He's remorseful. He feels bad. But he doesn't repent. You see, on the same, at the same period of time, Peter's going to deny the Lord three times, and then he gets restored through repentance. Judas is remorseful, and he never repents, and he goes out and kills himself. You see, regret and remorse that's not taken to the foot of the cross will always crush you. It'll just crush you. You got, some, you got some sin and, I mean, you know, this is a scary thing for you guys, male and female in this room. There's a Judas Iscariot in every one of us. It's called our flesh. Paul the Apostle said, in my flesh dwells no good thing. There's part of my nature that is drawn to bad things, just like you. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those three things that John the Apostle tells us are basically the Achilles heel of our soul. Now, in this experience that we see, if I sin and blow it, like you might have come in here, maybe you limped in here, spiritually speaking, tonight. Not physically, but you limped in here. 
Your life's been a mess. You know Jesus, but you feel like you have been so betraying the trust and the love that you have with him from sin. And that Judas Iscariot has got the best of you, the inside, your flesh, your fallen nature. But you don't have to leave here remorseful, man. You can leave here repentant and cleansed and washed and free because that's what the blood of Jesus makes possible for you and I. Jesus' love is redemptive, 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 not condemning. He said, I didn't come to condemn you. I come that you might be saved. He didn't come to condemn. The devil comes and condemns. You know who is whispering in his ear, in Judas's ear? Satan. Yeah, just end it. End it. That's his voice. He will always drive you from the throne of grace and crush you with your sin. He tempts you into it, and then he dogpiles and crushes you in it so that now you think there's no way out. How many people I have seen rescued from the very brink of blowing their brains out by the grace of God, by Jesus' love and grace. And you think, well, at least his journey here as a traitor on earth is over. He hung himself. What will it be like for Judas in eternity? Wow. You're the guy in eternity that betrayed the Savior of the world and never repented. Jesus tells us what it would be like in verse 24 of Matthew 26. The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. It was prophesied what Jesus would be going to the cross. But woe to that man by whom the Son of God is betrayed. What does he say? It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Is that one of the most sobering? I mean, that just like lands in your soul like, oh, it would have been better for me not to have been born to go into eternity. And he, he chose to go into eternity. He expedited the process. He hung himself. And he went into eternity. And Jesus said, you know what? For that guy, it would have been better not to have been born. But isn't that true? For everybody that goes through this life having opportunity after opportunity a thousand times in their life in America to hear the good news that Jesus loves you, died on a cross for your sins, was buried and rose from the dead, and if you receive him as your savior and experience the forgiveness of sins, you'll have eternal life with him, and you reject it and you reject it and you go into the grave rejecting him, and you go into eternity forever separated from him, no doubt in the eternity. Your memory is totally intact, according to the story that Jesus tells us about the rich man and Lazarus, that you can remember every opportunity. As a matter of fact, when people go, don't know the Lord and go into eternity, it says the rich man begged that Lazarus might go down and tell his five brothers because all of them weren't walking with God, and he could not bear the thought that his five brothers would come to that place of torment. It wasn't until the rich man got to hell that he actually became an evangelist. Isn't that bizarre? The evangelist for hell. <laughs> Now, I've seen some evangelists that resembled that remark, but <laughs> but this is the cool thing for you and me. God's grace, you guys, is so huge. His love is so deep and so wide and so high and so long. He just wants to meet us here tonight. He wants to do that work in our hearts. And we're going to stand together, close in prayer, and then Mike and the team's going to come bring a great song about us being delivered by the Lord. Let's stand and we're going to pray together. Father, we just ask right now for your grace to touch every heart 
Lord, you said that you are near the brokenhearted, and there are those who are here tonight, their hearts are broken, their hearts are heavy. Maybe the sin's been getting the best of them, and yet you and your love are calling them to yourself. And we just want to cry out to you and ask that you'd pour out your grace, your love, your redemption, your forgiveness to cover us with the precious forgiving blood of Jesus. That you would draw us near to yourself. That we would turn from our course of sin. That we would step deeper into your love. That there would be a fragrance of grace that comes from our life because those who are forgiven much love much. So Lord, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for bringing us out of our own bondage of Pharaoh under the devil and out of Egypt, our old life in the world and, and bringing us into the promised land of your love. Thank you, Lord. We just thank you for each soul that is here tonight. Lord, I pray that you would touch them in an intimate way, that they would know your great love for them. 